Morning. Scripture reading this morning is James 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, guilty of breaking, they're guilty of breaking all of it. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, but also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. Pray with me if you would. Oh, loving God, you provide for our every need. You feed our bodies and our souls. Yet we hunger to know you and love you more and more. So nourish us with your word today. Through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, you may remember if you uh, reach deep in your memory banks back to, I think it was November, uh, we had spent the fall looking at a New Testament book called James. James is a short book. It's only five chapters. Uh, James, the person who wrote it is a man named James. Uh, we believe it was James, the brother of Jesus himself. And James really exists. Uh, he writes this letter to Christians to answer a very simple question, which is, how do I grow in my faith? What does a more mature faith look like? How do I not just have a baby faith, but a more adult faith? Uh, The book right after James, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uh, puts it this way. He says, uh, infants drink milk, grown-ups, I'm paraphrasing, grown-ups eat meat. So how do we grow from just having a milk diet to having a meat diet, a more balanced diet? How do we grow in our faith? Now, we took a really slow pace in the fall. In fact, it took us 10 weeks to get us through just the first chapter of James It's going to take us 11 or 12 weeks to get through the last four, so we're going to pick up the pace uh, starting now. Now, James, um, what we're going to see, kind of chapter one is really, it's almost like a table of contents, and that's why we really took our time, is because uh, we really saw a lot of the book in the first chapter. But now James is going to explore them more, and he's going to use even more vivid imagery. He tends to bring up three major themes over and over and over. So if it sounds repetitive, that's because it is. Uh, the three themes, there are other themes or other parts of being a mature Christian, 
uh, but he effectively says you, you don't have a mature faith if you don't have these things. Number one, how do we suffer? James, James tries to help us grapple with how do we suffer well? How do we endure trials well when uh, life throws us a curveball? Number two, he deals with questions of wealth and poverty and money. How do we consider a Christian approach, a mature Christian approach to wealth and poverty? And then lastly, he answers or kind of addresses what does wisdom look like for a, for a Christian, especially wisdom in how we use or don't use our words. So today we come to a, a section, one of several, where James addresses money and wealth. And he's asking us this morning to consider how we treat people, other people who have... So he's not talking about what we do or the money we make or the money we have or the money we don't have or what we do. He's asking us to consider how do we treat other people who either have or don't have money. And not just how do we treat them, but how do we think about them? Because he's always trying to get below just our behavior and start addressing and diagnosing our heart. Let me say at the outset, uh, James never says that wealth is evil. James never says money. In fact, there's nowhere in the Bible that says money is evil. Sometimes people misquote it, and they think the Bible says, uh, there's a place in uh, Timothy says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But there's nowhere in Scripture that says that money itself is evil or wicked. It's not a sin to have lots of money. It's not a sin to know people with lots of money. Wealth is not evil. It is dangerous. And a lot of times in Scripture, the authors of Scripture warn us against the dangers of money and wealth because having money or pursuing money can deceive us into thinking we're more self-sufficient than we really are. There's been a, a, little bit, a fair amount of research coming out lately, uh, in especially sociological circles, that suggests that people who've been really successful, especially financially successful in one field, like one professional field, tend to think that they know more than they really do in almost every other field. You ever, you ever seen an example of this? That, that somebody who knows a whole lot about, I don't know, like de- designing medical devices, all of a sudden thinks they're qualified to give very detailed financial investing advice, when that's not their field of expertise. Maybe somebody has grown a very successful tech startup, and they know how the tech world works and creating apps and whatever, and then all of a sudden they assume they know how to manage a nonprofit. You see, when we become successful in one area, we often think that we know more than we do in all sorts of other areas. They're self-sufficient in one field, and so they think they're self-sufficient in all fields. And if you're self-sufficient in every part of life, or if you think you are, then what do you need God for? Wealth is not evil. It is dangerous. And we need to check and guard our hearts against the way that money can change our hearts. And resisting that push takes some effort. So this morning, James doesn't, he doesn't address the question of money head on. He kind of does this roundabout way and comes through the back door uh, to address how we think about money. And he does it in this very clever and subtle way. He provokes us to ask, how do I think about other people who are either wealthy or who are not wealthy? And do I treat them differently from one another? Do I show favoritism to one group over another? This morning, we're really thinking about favoritism. And we're going to consider three areas that James urges us to think about. One, the problem of favoritism. Why is it a problem? 
Number two, the temptation to it. In other words, why are we constantly drawn into certain relationships and why do we feel like it's, uh, we just don't even want a part in other relationships? Number three, where do we find power to overcome it? The problem of favoritism, the temptation to it, and the power to overcome it. Let's start with the problem. This is probably the most obvious one, and, and writing this sermon was really nice. Uh, a lot of times when I'm writing sermons, I have to figure out what's going on, and then I have to rack my brain or look around or read or think hard about, like, how do I illustrate this? How, does this in the, how might this look? Uh, James just gives us an image. He just gave me my illustration this morning. I don't even have to make it up. Thank you. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. So he's talking, by the way, to Christians, specifically to Christians in a Christian meeting. That would be a church service, any sort of gathering of Christians. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, here's a good seat for you, But you say to the poor man, well, you stand over there, or you sit here under my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If we were to tweak it just a little bit to apply more to today's uh, culture and context, we might tweak it something like this. Imagine you're in church, and somebody comes in very well-dressed, wearing a nice suit, a fitted suit even, They've got a fresh haircut. And then somebody else comes in, just threadbare clothes. They haven't showered maybe in several days. They probably haven't shaved in even longer. If you are quick to introduce yourself to the person who's well-dressed, but you conveniently just never make it across to the other side of the sanctuary to talk to the person and introduce yourself to the person who's not dressed as well, Haven't you shown favoritism? Now again, let me reemphasize, James is not criticizing wealth. He's not criticizing wealthy people. He's challenging our tendency to naturally gravitate towards some people and to naturally gravitate away from others. Now, one common objection that even when you start dipping your toes into this kind of a theme that people ask, okay, but I, can't, I can't talk to everybody, I can't know everybody, and is this really such a big deal? Like, do we really need to be thinking about, aren't there bigger problems? Aren't there bigger sins that we should be worried about? Aren't there bigger obstacles? This doesn't seem like that big a deal. Let me just point you to the fact that James says a little later in this passage, there is no such thing as a minor sin. If you have your Bible open or if you have your program, look at verse 10. He says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you break even just one point of the law, James says, it's like you've broken the whole thing. So no, the answer is no. For a mature Christian, there is no such thing as just a minor sin that we don't deal with that we can gloss over. And James actually says it's not a minor sin. Notice, notice how strongly he talks about this. This is in verse 4. He says, when we show favoritism, we become judges with evil thoughts. Now, evil, evil seems like a strong word to use there, doesn't it? 
Why is James so strong in his language? He tells us right here in verse 5, next verse. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor, poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God? Excuse me, to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have insulted the poor, he says. You see, he says the poor, the mate- like this is just the literally materially poor are rich in faith. This is not an absolute hard and fast rule, but it's true much more often than it isn't, that people who are materially, financially poor often have a much more robust faith than people who are getting along just fine. I see this all the time. And if you think about it, you might realize you see it too. Why is that? Why is that? Uh, One of my, uh, the woman who wrote my favorite uh, commentary that's helping me to understand James, she's probably part of one, it's just a really great commentary. Also, she went to my alma mater, Davidson College, uh, but her name is Miriam Miriam Kavalishin, and she just wrote very bluntly, the poor are often more inclined to depend upon God than the rich. Simple. (laughs) Makes sense. That somebody who's wealthy just has everything they need, and so if, if I have everything I need, then what do I need God for? But somebody who is poor knows that they don't have everything they need. They have to depend on God. So James says when we discriminate against the poor, we're mistreating someone whose faith is probably deeper and more robust than our own. Now let's connect this to something Jesus says. You remember in Matthew 25 when Jesus says, um, I'm going to paraphrase again, because he tells this long story, so I'll summarize. He basically says that whatever you do for the, Jesus' phrase is the least of these, people who are thirsty, people who are hungry, people who are, Jesus' word is naked, so who, who have physical needs, they don't have clothes, people who are imprisoned, there might be one or two other categories. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And notice when Jesus talks about the least of these, he talks about people with physical needs. Pretty bluntly and pretty directly, Jesus says, in effect, I am these people. Don't read too, too much into that, but that's, um, read Matthew 25. (laughs) It's right there. So, So it's a very short step to realize that when we favor certain people, the haves, over the have-nots, we are favoring, in effect, the rich over Jesus himself. But James says it's the opposite. God has chosen, he's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. That's an interesting word, isn't it? God has, it's not just kind of a natural, inevitable, circumstantial thing that they happen to be. James says God has chosen the poor How does your heart react (laughs) to hear that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Is your action more of of a revulsion or is it more of a rejoicing? And, And why is that? To some of us, and in our, in our culture, in our, frankly, in our region, in our city, most of us are pretty well off. 
So if the idea that God chooses the poor is offensive, why might that be? Another great commentator, Solomon Andrea, writes simply this, God is on the side of the poor, not because they are poor, but because they are responsive to him and are near the kingdom. Simply put, when you're poor, you don't have a lot to fall back on, and so you're more likely to fall back on God. When you're not poor, you have all sorts of other things to fall back on. And again, remember, this is not to criticize wealth or wealthy people. The point is to challenge our tendency towards favoring some over others. Do we treat, this is really what James is asking, do we treat the person in the sharp-fitted suit just as well as we treat the person who's wearing the same clothes that they've been wearing for a week? And if not, why not? Our tendency, if we're honest, is not to. But why is that? uh, Just this week I read an an African proverb, uh, thin cows are not licked by their friends. That would have made a great sermon. I should have made that the sermon title. Thin cows are not licked by their friends. Why is it that most of us, if we're honest, have this kind of inevitable, invisible bent to treat successful people differently? Why is that? There are at least two reasons. One, we stand to gain more from a relationship with someone who's wealthy than we stand to gain from a relationship with someone who's not. And secondly, we we actually tend to assume that wealth and success are roughly equivalent with morality. The first is more straightforward. We stand to gain more. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's worth just touching on. If you become friends with a person of influence, you're likely to gain influence. If you become friends with someone who has a good reputation in the community, you're likely to to gain a good reputation in the community. There's this kind of calculus that goes on a lot of times in our minds. What do I stand to gain from this relationship? It's very subtle, but, but it's there. But secondly, let's dig into this one a little more. We tend to assume that wealth or success is correlated with morality. We tend to give wealthier people the benefit of the doubt, And we tend to assume that a poor person has probably done something wrong. Think about it. If if you see the police talking to somebody in that nice business suit, what do you assume in your mind? Well, they're just uh, they're just chatting. They happen to know each other, maybe. Maybe somebody did something to the person in the suit. Maybe they're reporting a crime. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. Maybe it was something minor. It's just like a speeding ticket or jaywalk. It wasn't really a big deal, right? Now, if you see a police officer talking to somebody who's not dressed as well, what do you assume? I wonder what they did. You see? Our minds just instantly go there. And none of, if, we're, if we're being honest, none of us is really above it. I'm not, you're not. We, we all go there. We are so quick to judge based on people's outward appearances, aren't we? Or consider a common argument. You hear this a lot from people uh, when, when conversations turn to politics, dare I talk politics, and social welfare programs. And people who are opposed to certain social welfare programs, what do you often hear? Well, they're going to abuse the system. It's interesting, by the way, that we basically only hear that argument from people who've never needed that system. But at an even deeper level, what's going on? 
There is an assumption that if a system is there to benefit somebody who's poor, that the poor person will almost inevitably abuse that system. See, we make moral judgments based on how we perceive people's wealth. Isn't it scary? Isn't it scary how quickly our minds equate wealth with morality and poverty with immorality? In all sorts of ways, you see our hearts. James isn't talking about money. He's talking about our hearts. And in all sorts of ways, our hearts favor one group at the expense of another. Now again, let's be clear. James is not saying that you shouldn't have rich friends, wealthy friends, friends who are doing just fine. He doesn't say that at all, especially, again, in a culture like ours. Like, how can you, everybody in Portsmouth is wealthy. Not everybody, but it sure seems like it a lot of times. It's unavoidable. And he's not saying that wealth is evil or that people who are wealthy are evil. Here's where he's challenging us. He's not trying to take the wealthy down a notch so much as he's trying to challenge us to say, can you elevate the poor Will you treat the poor with just as much dignity and respect and deference and trust? Will you give them just as much benefit of the doubt as you give to somebody who's more well-off? Are you just as eager to greet them and to introduce yourself and to shake their hand? Just as eager to learn their name and hear their story? Just as quick to invite them to go out to dinner, or even to your home for dinner. James says that a mark of a mature Christian is that we treat the poor with just as much dignity as we treat the wealthy with. You see? It's not our tendency. But that's what God calls us to. Now, the obvious question is, okay, how? (laughs) Because that's actually really hard. And you can, I mean, you... (laughs) You could just hear the sermon, Pastor Chris said, and I guess it's in the Bible, and I should, and, and you will for a little while, like you might get a little better, and, and it might change your behavior. But actually, sowing that seed in a way that it takes root in our heart is much, much, much more difficult. See, James says the key is this command. Isn't this interesting? He goes all the way back to all of our favorite book in the Old Testament, Leviticus. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, if we're familiar with that verse, it's because Jesus also quotes it. When, when a teacher of the law tries to trip Jesus up and he's, he's challenged, he says, teacher, what's the greatest command? And there are over 600 commands in the Old Testament. What's the greatest? And Jesus says, actually, there, there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus doesn't assume that there's really much of a priority. In the way Jesus says it, he basically says these are, these are so intertwined that you can't have one without the other. And by the way, right after that, when somebody says, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? You remember what Jesus says? He tells a story about a Samaritan. Now, in the ancient world, uh, the Jews mostly lived in a region called Judea. A lot of Jews lived in a region to the north called Galilee, and in between was a region called Samaria. And if you were a Jew, you hated the Samaritans so much that you actually, if you had to go from Judea to Galilee or vice versa, you didn't go through Samaria, you went around. It added several days to your journey. But you went around because you did not associate with them. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? 
And Jesus tells a story in which the Samaritan is the neighbor. And the good, pious Jews, actually a priest and a Levite, religious leaders, are not. Not the people who are easy to love, but the people who are hard to love. Not the people who are like us, but actually the people who are very unlike us. Not the people with whom a relationship will get us something, but the people, <laughs> the people for whom a relationship or with whom a relationship will cost us something. But we still haven't answered the question, but how? But how? James really gets to the meat of the matter at the very end of what he teaches here. Look down at verses 12 and 13. It seems like he's changing the topic, but he's not. He says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Another way to translate that might, might be mercy conquers judgment, which is a, just chew on that thought. That's just wonderful. Mercy conquers judgment. James is making a point here that Jesus has made several times too, by the way. Jesus, right after the, uh, Jesus teaches the Lord prayer, he says the same thing, that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Remember, part of this is James, his style. He's just a blunt, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. So if you're a blunt, tell-it-like-it-is kind of person, you're going to like James, or you're not going to like him when he, you know, butts up against you. But that's just kind of how he is. Doesn't it seem harsh, though, that he basically says if you don't show mercy to others, that God won't show mercy to you? Well, think with me. In almost every case, how does somebody respond after they have been shown mercy. In almost every case, somebody who has been shown mercy becomes merciful. It just, it, there's something about receiving mercy that makes us merciful. It just happens. We, it's, it's inevitable, I dare say. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody very, very, very close to me who was an alcoholic, and they had gotten sober, and it had been a long process of getting sober. But they had, they had gotten sober, and they had gotten sober through a lot of hard work and through a lot of hard interactions and conversations with people. And I asked this person, I, I asked him, I said, tell me what you've learned, how you're different. Like, just help me, walk me through the past five years. What's it been like? It's probably more than five years. I'll never forget. He said, you know, I, I, think, I think all of this has made me more merciful to other people who are struggling with the same thing. Part of his process of getting sober and of dealing with his alcoholism was having to receive the mercy of God because very often somebody who's an alcoholic thinks that they're dirt, that they're nothing, that they're worthless. And then you, then you, then you go and get drunk and then you think that even more. And overcoming that, he said, just took tremendous, but I just had to come to grips with the fact that God was merciful to me and that even though I was doing this incredibly destructive thing, that God's mercy still held. And he said, and now I just, I can't help myself. When I, when I see other people dealing with the same thing, my heart breaks for them. He had received mercy, and so he inevitably became merciful, you see? 
You know what's true, on the other hand, of somebody who, who never shows mercy? It tells you they've, they've never received mercy. And it doesn't necessarily mean that nobody's offered them mercy, but very often we don't want to receive mercy. We want to think we can do this on our own. Thank you. But because they haven't received mercy, they're, not, they're actually not able to show mercy because you can't give out what you've never received in the first place. You can't pour out a glass of water if you haven't filled up the glass of water in the first place. Just try to pour out an empty glass. How do we become merciful towards the poor? How do we not play favorites? The fact is, friends, in Jesus Christ, God has shown you mercy. Do you know that? Do you feel that? He didn't show favoritism. In fact, you know what, you know what Jesus says? Jesus says in, I think it's Mark 9 or 10, somewhere in there, um, he says, I didn't, it's not the healthy people who, came for a do- who need a doctor. It's sick people who need a doctor. Jesus says, I didn't come for people who are already righteous. I came for sinners. We're all spiritually impoverished. In Matthew 5, Jesus calls it poor in spirit. When he, he, and he says, blessed are, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. And isn't it good news that God has shown mercy to us, namely, that God has not shown favoritism to us. Isn't it good news, if we're really being honest, that God doesn't come for the put together. He comes for the put out. Isn't it good news that God doesn't come for the puffed up, but for the broken down and the deflated Isn't it good news that God doesn't come for the strong and the secure, but he he comes for the weak and the weary? In Romans 5, Paul puts it this way. He says, rarely, rarely will anyone die for someone else, for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up and get your life together, and then I will come for you and show you mercy. No, Jesus says, I will show you mercy, and through my mercy, we will get you put back together, but only because I was willing to be broken on your behalf. You have to ask yourself, have I received the mercy of Jesus? It's been offered. There's no question. But, but just because Jesus offers you his mercy doesn't mean you have to receive it. And many people have heard and, and, and been offered the mercy of Jesus and have chosen not to receive it. Have you accepted, have you received and welcomed the mercy of Jesus into your life? It's scary because it has to... You have to admit that you need it, that you're, that you're impoverished yourself. If not, then of course you won't show mercy to the poor. Because you can't give something you haven't received in the first place. You will never, we will never treat the poor in the way that God calls us to treat them if we don't realize that we ourselves are poor. 
And Jesus, rather than coming for everyone else who seems to have their lives all put together, has come for you. Weary and tired and barely holding it all together, you. Once again, Miriam Kavalish the commentator I mentioned, she says, if we absolutely refuse to show mercy to others, we demonstrate that we have never truly received God's mercy ourselves. When James challenges us to consider how we treat different groups of people, namely the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the successful and the unsuccessful, however you want to categorize it, he's not challenging you to just do better. He's challenging you to dig deep in your heart and to ask yourself, have I really received the mercy of God? He's challenging you to ask God for mercy one more time. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. We show mercy because we have been shown mercy, you see. We treat the poor with exceptional dignity because God has treated us poor as we are with exceptional dignity. But it all comes from him. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, would you just prick our hearts, convict us of all the places we think we're better than we are, Help us to see and to come to grips with and to own the fact that we, we need mercy. We don't have it all together. We wish we did, but we don't. But thanks be to God, because in his mercy, Jesus Christ was broken so that we might be put back together. Lord, help us to receive the mercy of Jesus Christ and help it to fill us so much that it would just, it would spill over inevitably. We almost wouldn't even have to think about it. And that when people ask us, our answer wouldn't be just because, oh, it's the right thing to do or it's the moral thing, but no, it would be, oh, I have received mercy, so how could I not show it? Change us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.